When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When Shopify says you can sell anywhere, oh, they mean it. Woo, hold up. Just got a new sale, order fulfilled, and shipped. Inventory level's good. Whoa, Shopify doesn't mind if you're at sea level. Or on top of the world. Ah, you can run and grow your business anywhere. Climbing mountains is never easy, but at least Shopify gives me all the tools I need for my business to hit new beats. Whether you're selling carabiners or crop tops, start selling with Shopify today and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. We've built the platform so you can keep climbing and grow your business to new heights. With Shopify, you really can sell to anyone from anywhere. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Start selling online today. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash free22. Shopify.com slash free22. Shopify.com slash free22. Internet connection required. Not available on mountaintops or seafloors. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. And we're Team, Team Ready. Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is. So they want you to be ready. It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com slash team ready. What up, everybody? Welcome back to the Brothers Brand podcast. I'm Rob Brandt. And I'm Rick Brandt. And we are the Brothers Brandt. Episode 70 was fantastic. And here on episode 71, we're honored to be joined by the golden voice of sports broadcasting, a sunshine boy himself. This man was on the call for Jack Nicholas, Jack Nicholas's 1986 Masters victory, Tiger Woods's 2019 victory, Christian Leitner's 1992 March Madness buzzer beater for Duke. Tanya Harding's 1994 Winter Olympics figure skating debacle, countless Heisman Trophy winning seasons in the SEC, and decades worth of NFL games. Rick, would you do the honors of introducing this legend to our listeners? Rob, it would be my honor and distinct privilege to introduce and welcome to the Brothers Brandt podcast, the golden voice of sports broadcasting, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Vern Lundquist. Vern, welcome to the Brothers Brandt Podcast. Uh, thank you, Rick and Rob. I'm tempted to do a Johnny Carson. <laughs> Vern, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be with you. We are so excited to have you on today's podcast. And as I said before we started recording, we want to thank you 
for all that you have meant to us and to sports fans throughout the world, your passion and your enthusiasm on the microphone, on TV, on the radio has just heightened all of these incredible sports moments. So on behalf of the Brothers Brandt, thank you so much for all that you have done. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. All right. So let's let's jump into this. Let's have some fun. Before the memorable calls and all the sports broadcasting that you did, tell our listeners about your childhood and your passion for sports as a kid. Okay. Uh, I, I, I had two idols, not idols, that's the wrong term to use, two heroes when I was growing up. And, to my, and I grew up essentially in Everett, Washington. My dad was a Lutheran minister and uh, his first assignment out of the Lutheran School of Theology was in Everett. And we lived there for eight years and I had a hero that I grew up emulating. His name was Doak Walker and he wore number 37 for the SMU ponies and for the Detroit Lions. And uh, I was so enamored with him. There were no television broadcasts essentially back then, but there was a mutual college football game of the week. And the voice was a late, late legend named Al Helfer. And I'd listen to the exploits of Doak and SMU every Saturday. And then we would, after school in Everett, my dad had a, an old wood frame Lutheran church that was directly across from the high school campus and had a vacant lot. And every afternoon at four o'clock in the fall, there'd be about 12, 15 of us that would gather dressed in tennis shoes, blue jeans, and t-shirts. And we'd get to emulate our heroes, college football heroes. And I insisted that I would stencil number 37 on my white t-shirt and, uh, and then D Walker uh, where the name was. And that was my province. I, you know, nobody else gets dope. I do. And so that was what first captivated me about the game of college football. I also was a very poor basketball player in those times. Very poor, uh, very, very poor. I was the 13th guy on the 12th man bench. Uh, <laughs> but I learned that whatever uh, association I was going to have with athletics, it was going to be by talking about it. But then Doak and I, uh, and I met him uh, in Dallas. Uh, when, and then when Nancy and I, in 1984, we got married in 82, and we decided on a whim, really, to... Uh, Chuck it in Dallas, Fort Worth, and moved to Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And Doak lived there with his second wife, uh, who was a two time Olympic downhill skier. Her name was uh, Skeeter Werner. And uh, someone asked us, Doak and me, would we co host a celebrity golf tournament? So we did that in Steamboat for 15 years. And it was my everlasting joy to have my name linked with him. And it was called the Walker Lundquist. Big names Walker, tiny letters Lundquist. But we did that for 15 years and because of what he had done in his life and the people I'd met in my career, 
we'd have a rollicking good list of celebrities coming in, in town. So, and then when he passed away, he was the victim of a skiing accident in 1998. And he died that year, eight months after the tragedy. Uh, and I was asked to eulogize him. And that maybe is the greatest honor I've ever had. And uh, anyway, that Doak was my initial. And then my other, other hero was, was uh, Daryl Royal. And that was because we moved to Austin when I was 12. Again, my dad was reassigned to uh, a church in Austin. And this is a great, great city. That's where I am right now at my brother's home. And uh, when I moved here, it was 130,000 people. Uh, last week, they released the census figures. And Austin is now two and a half million people. And they've got serious traffic problems. Holy cow. Oh, there's a herd of cattle. Well, let's let them pass. You know, that kind of thing. But, <laughs> but Coach Royal uh, was the head coach at the University of Texas four years after we moved here. And that it was the only game in town. I was working for my first job was at KTBC television, radio uh, in downtown Austin, Texas Broadcasting, that's KTBC. And the station was owned by President Johnson and his wife, Lady Bird. So, and, and Texas was the only, there was no, nothing professional here. So Texas was the one-eyed monster. And Coach Royal and I, I covered him every week, uh, both at the games and press conferences and that's And we became friends. And uh, those were the two big, biggest influences on what I chose to do for a living. That's incredible, Vern. That is so cool that you got a chance to spend time around those two individuals and help shape what you wanted to end up doing in your life. You talked about working in Texas. You took a job working as a radio broadcaster for the Dallas Cowboys, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you what led to that. Uh, and, and Rick, because you live in Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, I'll share a little story with you, just a brief mention. Uh, I, I got the job. I, I was in, actually, I moved from Austin to San Antonio, and I did news for a year. Uh, and I realized right along, right, right away that I didn't want to continue down that path. I went back into sports broadcasting. And so on my third try, uh, I got a job at Channel 8, WFAA-TV in Dallas, Fort Worth. It was a move into the top 10 market in the country. And uh, uh, it was just the biggest opportunity. And I knew it could be. And along the way, uh, I got a call and Tex Ram, the general manager of the Cowboys, and I was doing pre and post game on the radio network. And then I was the color commentator for one year, I think. And then uh, my partner, who's still alive, he's 96 years old now. His name is Bill Mercer. And, and Bill uh, wanted to be a Major League Baseball uh, announcer. So when the Texas Rangers moved from Washington, D.C., he asked for and auditioned for and was given the job of the Texas Rangers first baseball announcer. Well, that opened the, the door for me. And Tex said, uh, if you, I, I had an offer to go to Los Angeles. 
And he said, if you'll stay here in, in Dallas-Fort Worth, I'll make you the play-by-play announcer for the Cowboys. And we had 119 stations in 20 states. They were on the verge of becoming America's team. So that just opened voluminous doors for me. And um, Tex said, when he, when he asked me to join them, he said, you got to turn down the LA job because I'm going to make you the host of the, the play by play guy for us. And he said, we're going to be pretty good over the next decade. Well, yeah, kind of. And that's where my, so many of those guys have remained close friends over the years. Uh, Nancy and I, my wife, we have dinner at least once a year with Roger and Marianne Staubach. Uh, we've shared meals with Cliff Harris and Mel Renfro at, uh, all of those Bob Lilly. And so it was just a magical time. And they will tell you, well, we didn't want to be called America's team. That was NFL films. Baloney. <laughs> well, Texas. I like the idea of America's team. So Vern, that is so cool. So amazing that again, you, you had that experience to be in Dallas and to be with the Cowboys. You spent a long time with organization on the radio can you pinpoint perhaps your favorite memory your favorite nfl experience throughout your career yeah i can i can i can most memorable not my favorite at all uh this would be in 1979 and the cowboys and pittsburgh steelers were matched in super bowl 10 i believe it was no 13 Super, and, and it was played in Miami. And uh, we had just uh, realized that we had the capacity now to go remotely from a distant location to back to Channel 8. And so Tech Shram, uh, had, he, he was a great businessman. He also knew how to accumulate wealth. And so he had purchased a 48-foot fishing trawler, cabin cruiser. And he had it docked in the canal uh, in Fort Lauderdale. And so we, he said, if you want to go live from my boat, do it. So I would host the 10 o'clock sports on Channel 8 every week of that week, every night of that week from Texas, Texan Marty's boat, his wife. And on Wednesday night before the game, I had Jackie Smith on as my live guest, and, and I've still got video of it. And Jackie and I were sitting on the top level where the steering apparatus was. I notice I'm really a nautical guy. Uh, the, the wheel, steelers and whatever. And uh, so in our conversation, I said, Jackie, it's your 13 years in the NFL, first year the Cowboys. Have you envisioned how you want your career to end? And he poignantly said, yes, I would like to make a meaningful catch in a winning Super Bowl victory for the Cowboys. Well, you guys are too young, but on third and goal from the 11-yard line, Tom Landry sent a play in and Roger looked at him and said, no, no, no. And Tom said, he pointed to him and he said, run the play. And so there was 
a fake draw play, and Roger went back, and Jackie Smith, 6'3", 6'4", 260, huge man. And the ball hit him right in the breadbasket. And uh, do we lose my picture? No. Yeah. Keep yeah. rolling. Okay. Start video. Well, okay, I can do that. Hey. Uh, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> technology is not my friend. That's uh, all good, brother. Okay. So anyway, Jackie dropped the pass. And it would have tied the game in the third quarter. And uh, I just reacted based on what he had told me on that Wednesday night live broadcast. And, and I said, I reacted as a friend, I think, more than a professional broadcaster. And I just reacted and I said, bless his heart. He's got to be the sickest man in America. And it was all my reaction to what he had said on our live broadcast. And Phil Mushnick of the New York Post wrote a column about that years later. And he said, what could it be like for a guy's career to peak when he was 39 years old? Because he said, bless his heart. And it's, it's just, guys, it's just a reaction as a human being to another human being's pain. And I knew what that meant. And Sadly, to this day, as far as I know, now we haven't lived in Dallas for a long time, but I don't think he's ever been back to a cowboy reunion in all these years. And that's, that's sad. Vern, that is sad. I will say I got chills just listening to you describe that moment and that experience. Have you, can I turn it maybe into a positive here? Mm -hmm. Can you tell me uh, perhaps maybe a good John Madden story? Legendary. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was I was number one A for years. Pat and John were number number one, and I was partnered with Terry Bradshaw. My my back to back partners in the early eighties and later were Terry Bradshaw and Dan Fouts. Now that was the Alpha and Omega personalities on television but uh, and then occasionally when Pat Summerall was doing uh, golf or tennis they would call me up and I, I worked with John and I probably worked 50 games over the years as John Madden's partner so I got to know him very very well he's the best I've ever seen at, at uh, announcing a game that has, was out of control. Most guys, you know, you get a 35 point lead in the third quarter and you just kind of, oh, well, that's it. You know, everybody's click, 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 and they are. But for John, it never mattered. And he was the best I've ever seen at gathering the minutia of the game. You know, he, he'd say, his, his producer and director were legendary, Bob Stenner, and Sandy Grossman. Bob is still living. Sandy died about six years ago. But Sandy would listen to John and he'd follow John's leads. And John used to use the, the what we call the talk back. And it's you push a button and, and you you yell at the truck. And he'd say, give me what I need. And so Sandy would say, yes, sir. <laughs> Not with quite the enthusiasm with which I once used those two words. Uh, 
but but John was very demanding, and yet he could find stuff surrounding the game and weave it in uh, and make it part of the, the narration, the narrative. And Pat was a brilliant counterpuncher. And Pat Summerall's great gift was no matter where John took the broadcast, Pat would, would redirect his focus to hey, they're breaking the line of scrimmage, you know, I mean, they're breaking the huddle. And uh, so that together they made a great team. But John was a man of enormous idiosyncrasies, enormous. And he'd probably come after me with a club if he ever finds out I'm telling these stories. <laughs> we did We did become really good friends. And uh, uh, he... He would, he was a heavy man, you know, he weighed 260, something like that, uh, on a good day. And uh, when he hadn't had extra waffles, uh, but he always had a big rotating fan pointing, it wasn't movable, it always pointed right to him. And so he had a constant stream of wind at his back. He would put a paper towel to his left and he would fill it with uh, lemonade drops, honey, honey, honey drops. And uh, he'd chew those during the game. And he always had a full glass of iced tea right in front of him. And he had a guy, ironically, the, the studio uh, manager, the, the booth manager, was the late Ricky Nelson's brother, cousin, cousin. His name was Richie Nelson, and and Richie was there to service John, and good Lord, he never better not forget who he was working for. So, but but John and I became friends, really really friends. Uh, we visited his home in Virginia. Uh, you you might remember, or maybe you don't. He was afraid of heights, and. So he would insist on a hotel room no higher than the third floor because he couldn't be enclosed in an elevator. He was also claustrophobic. And uh, the, the stories go on and on and on. But he was one of the great. There are only two men in my lifetime who could move the needle, so to speak, uh, who would cause people to tune in and not tune out. Howard Cosell and John Madden. They're the only guys I've ever known for whom the audience would watch no matter what was going on on the field. Vern, you're so right. Rob and I didn't have the opportunity to really listen to a lot of his broadcasts growing up just because of our age, but uh, listening to some of his historic calls and I always used to enjoy when he would write the X's and O's and draw the plays and then, of course, also, too, Rob and I played his video game growing up as a kid. So just an iconic man in the game of football. Thanks for sharing some of those behind-the-scenes golden stories. I know I'm loving them. I know our listeners are loving them. I'd love to transition with you now to golf. Sure. And Rob and I, we love the game of golf. You have had some incredible, memorable calls in the game of golf. Can you walk us through your iconic 1986 Jack Nicholas call. Set the scene for our listeners today 
and walk us through that play-by-play that led you to, to that experience and to that call that is so memorable to this day. Well, I, I'd be glad to, uh, Rick. I, I, uh, I can recall almost everything that happened on that Sunday. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> uh, most vividly was this scene. Uh, our executive producer and director at that time was the late Frank Cherkinian. And Frank was a little uh, natally dressed Armenian-American who, whom we all called the Ayatollah, partly out of respect, but mostly out of abject fear. You did not want Frank Cherkinian in your face, and he was in your face a lot. But he was legendary, and he deserved to be. Anyway, that, that Sunday, uh, Frank was in the, in the truck, front of the truck, and the associate director was a guy who ultimately succeeded him, named Lance Barrow, who is now retired, but uh, Lance was the AD, and that meant he was in charge of uh, videotape and alerting Frank to who was where in the course because it's an overwhelming job. The director has to look at, I think at Augusta, we have like 60 cameras. So he's got monitors up here. And he's the one who says, uh, ready six, take six. And then our TD sits next to him and he punches a button and you see what uh, Steve Milton has chosen to put on the air. So Lance is a row behind him. And Jack, uh, had had a benign first nine or eight holes. So he's even par. He started the day at four back of Seve Valderas. And uh, he birdied the ninth. And Lance screwed up his courage and said, Frank, we've got Jack with a birdie at the ninth. And Frank became livid almost, the way Lance tells the story. We didn't know this. And he turned around, and, and Lance was a large man. So we had the Ayatollah in the front and Buddha in the second round, second deck. And he said, uh, Lance, Buddha, you need to learn what we do here for a living. We tell stories. <clears throat> Jack Nicholas is not a part of this story. Ignored him. Now, Jack Birdie's 10. He turns around and, and he sees Lance waving at him. He says, uh, Frank, we've got Jack with a birdie at 10 as well. Okay, roll the tape. Let's see Jack on nine. Now let's see Jack on 10. So we got both men. And I promise you this, Jack Nicholas did not take a breath for the rest of that afternoon that wasn't televised live every step i mean the whole because it became a, an unbelievable story so he fights his way back and he I, I let me see if i can remember he birdied 11 he bogeyed 12 he birdied 13 he parred 14 he eagled 15 ben wright was there for that and then he almost aced it at 16 in that sequence. In the meantime, he's climbing up and he's two shots behind Ballesteros because Ballesteros was playing well. 
Seve, as Jack was getting ready to tee off on 17, where I was located, Seve put it in the water at 15, the, the par five. It's a treacherous, it's a short par five, but it can be treacherous. You got water in the front, water behind it. And Seve dumped it, dunked it rather, and he takes double bogey at the, at the 15th hole. Well, Jack is getting ready to tee off at 17, and I said on the air, well, how about this? He's now tied for the lead uh, with Seve at, at uh, whatever the number was at, at the age of 46. Well, Jack teed off and he pulled it left on 17. He's got a wedge to the green. He pulls the wedge up. He's only 12 feet. And as he was walking up, I was on a tower uh, 20 feet up in the air behind 17 it's gotten a lot better now but i was behind 17 and as jack was walking up we went to a commercial somewhere and i remember thinking to myself if if he makes this putt and it was not a simple putt it had a little subtle double break if he makes this he's going to have the lead at the age of 46 he hadn't won in two years and which for him was an eternity. And so I just said, whatever happens here, make it simple and get out of the way. So they, they took the shot from behind Jack. Uh, and I said, uh, this is for uh, a birdie and the lead. And then I, I, I just laid out, shut up. Uh, it's again, that's a discipline. You've got to learn. And he hit the butt. And when it was about that far from the hole, that's when I kind of said, maybe. And then when it went in, I just exploded and said, yes, sir. With a little more enthusiasm than that. Uh, but, and then I shut up. And uh, if you ever look back at the tape, Watch Jack in react. He was like a symphony conductor. And in my view, that's what helped make that call memorable because when the ball drops and as soon as it dropped, that's when I said, yes, sir. And if you watch Jack, as the ball drops, he goes, yes, sir. And his arms go up. And it was like he was giving a downbeat. And Jack and I have talked about that. And of course, he's he's not uh, a chatterer. Uh, Jack does not do small talk well. But a few years back, we had dinner one night in Augusta as the guest of one of the members. Uh, and the champion's dinner was upstairs, uh, one floor above us. And champion's dinner broke up and all the wives were down in the dining room with us. And they come down the stairs. It's quite, quite a procession of amazing golfers, all wearing their jackets. And Ben Crenshaw has become a dear, dear friend of mine over the years in Austin. And uh, he's played in Steamboat Springs before. Uh, but Jack and Ben and I were chatting about it. And I said, Jack, when you watch that, and you will see it because it's ubiquitous. They play as a part of the opening tees at Augusta every year. Well, that makes me proud that they think it worthy of, of our tees. Uh, but I said, Jack, 
watch that and watch yourself. And you're, yes, sir. And he says, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Vern, so that anyway, that's that was, yeah. That, that uh, the way you described it, I hadn't even been born yet in 1986, but I felt don't like. Be, I don't want to hear that. Rick, Rick, are you trying to ruin this podcast right now? <laughs> Rob, I felt like I was there that April Sunday in 86, the way Vern just articulated that moment. <laughs> Vern, can you do the same real quick? I know Rob's got a bunch of great good stuff he wants to get into with you, but if you could do the same for your Tiger Woods' 2005 improbable chip-in birdie call on the 16th hole, Give it to us as if it's happening today for the first time. It's tough to emulate that moment uh, and, and do it in the same, uh, same style. But uh, I will share you. Uh, here's, the, here's the real story. And, and I, I'm setting myself up here for failure. But there is a, there is a part of that that is just extraordinary. Just and made and made the whole story uh, made it proper, made it memorable. Uh, in the truck, the producer then was Lance Barrow. He sits to the far left, and there are three guys in the front row. And Steve Milton, the director, is sitting in the middle. He calls the shots, and then in that case, the technical director was Norm Patterson, young man, forty years old. And Norm is the technical director. So when Steve says, ready 10, take 10, Norm punches a button and 10 pops on the air, whatever 10 happens to be. And that's part of the story. So uh, Tiger hits an eight iron long and left. And by the way, they've shaved that area of the ground. Now, I was out there last year. Yeah. Uh, and we were doing a reminiscence of everything. I've been, uh, that was my 22nd year at, at 16. So they had me out on the, on the 16th tower and underneath. And we were recalling some of the great things that we've seen. And obviously number one was Tiger's chip in. So he hits it long and left. And my, my math skills are non-existent, but I walked it off once. And from the, I knew exactly because it was right, right near a sprinkler head. So even though they've shaved that part now, it kind of hung up at the edge of that first cut and, and the, the flat grass. And it went straight across. And then if on command, it skidded to a stop. He hit the perfect shot. He, he, it skips once, it bounces once, and then it's backspin. And then all of a sudden it turns right and begins to weave itself down toward the hole. Uh, and so I was ready to, and, and Lanny Watkins was our 18th hole announcer at that time. And Chris DeMarco was his playing partner. And uh, Chris, Chris hit his tee shot 20 feet below the hole, uphill birdie putt. And Lanny said, as Tiger was about to hit his chip, you know, he'll be lucky if he can keep this ball inside DeMarco's ball, which was 20 feet below the hole. Well, that thing, he hit the chip perfectly and it 
skid it to a stop, it turned right and rolled down. And in this case, the camera guy in the tower with me was a retired fellow now. His name was Bob Wishney uh, from Philadelphia, as a matter of fact. And uh, uh, so Steve Milton said, ready 10, take 10. So now you've got Wishney's camera. They were brand new Ikigami cameras that year. And he's got Tiger framed perfectly. And here's the chip. And I, I said, well, here it comes. And boom, boom, and it starts right. And as I was beginning to exclaim, uh, the ball tumbles toward the hole. And as it's about to slow to, slow to a stop, Steve uh, Milton, the director, says, ready six, take six. Well, six was over here, and he had a frame shot. Skip Shackelford was the camera guy. And he's got a frame shot of Tiger, um, chest high. And Norm Patterson instinctively disobeyed a command. It's like ignoring the command of a ship captain. It's fireable. And Norm instinctively said, not yet. Not yet. And he did not take six. And he could have been fired for it and it not worked out so well. And and he, he stayed on Wishney's shot. And because he did, we saw the ball tumble in the hole. And that's when I said, in your life, have you ever seen anything like that? And I was reacting as a fan. No, I've never seen anything like that in my life. And it was just a reaction. And most of what we do is reactionary. And... Uh, and only then, and here's the other thing I think was so key. We went ahead and, and Lance Barrow let DeMarco, and he parred the hole. He did, didn't get his birdie, but he tapped in for a par. And that was a seven-minute elapsed time between Tiger's chip falling in the hole and DeMarco finishing. And only then did Lance say, well, let's look at this again. And only then did we hear the whole thing and we played sound up. <clears throat> and had we not had that shot live, it changes everything. Because I would have, we would have heard the shot, uh, heard the ball and heard the roar, but we would not have seen it as it actually happened. And God bless him. Norm said, no, not yet. Vern, every hair on my body is standing up in chills right now. Unreal. Yeah, it was. And, and I don't know Tiger nearly as well as I do Jack. There's an age difference, considerable. Jack and I, I, I love to needle Jack because he's six years older than I am. And I said, I'm just following you as I've done all my career. But we're, we're friends. Uh, you know, he and Barbara have never invited Nancy and me to come down to Florida to visit them. But we're, we're friends and, and we acknowledge that we, uh, Jack did a part of a video tribute when I, my last game in Georgia. And uh, he, on, they, they had on the, the big screen at the left side for us, uh, they had Governor Nathan Deal, Jim Nance, 
uh, Jack and Kirby Smart. And what Jack said on that video was, yes, sir, we're tied to the hip forever. Now, Tiger, uh, again, there's a big age difference. And we I'm not nearly as close uh, as to him as I am Jack. But uh, the Tiger thing, it gives me the chills when I think about it. And uh, we're tied at the hip together, too, because of what he did and what I said. So. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Vern, that, yeah, like Rick said, chills, chills. The whole time we're talking. Um, now, Van, Vern, uh, you know, I, I have to uh, ask another golf question here. And, uh, you know, we're going to go in a little different direction, though. Um, can you tell us one of our favorite movies growing up was Happy Gilmore? And in 1996, you starred as yourself in one of our all-time favorite movies, and you crushed it, Vern. Can you tell our listeners about how that came about and your calls of Adam Sandler's golf game? I can indeed. Uh, Pat Summerall and I, for years before Pat's death, <clears throat> shared the same agent. Uh, Bill Raftery and I have the same guy. Is a, is a man named Bob Rosen. And life is pretty good on, on the, the, the backs of all of us who have contributed to his uh, income. He, he, he lives at uh, Bighorn in Palm, in Palm Springs. And uh, anyhow, Bob called me and he said, uh, uh, there's a part open for this goofy movie that they're taping in, uh, in, and uh, they want to know if you want like to fly up there and do it. And so I said, oh, sure, you know, a movie. And I knew who Adam Sandler was, obviously. He was a star in 79 Live. And, uh, but I didn't have any idea what the script was. So I flew up, they put me up in the hotel. We reported out to the golf course and they had taken over a, a vacated hospital. And in the backyard, uh, they had built a phony television booth. Uh, I think they even have, have a G for golf channel on it. And I read the script the night before, they hadn't sent it to me. And it was interesting because at the top, uh, was the name Pat Summerall, which had been inked out. <laughs> and my guess is that Pat read the script and said, not for me. And if you think about Pat, he wouldn't have fit in that role because he was succinct and he never about flashing demonstrations. But he, uh, he turned it down, obviously. And so I'm there reading the script and I thought, well, this might be kind of fun. So they sat me down uh, in this phony broadcast booth and we were behind and they had a crowd behind us, all of the extras. It was really a movie set. And I'd, I had done a couple tiny, tiny roles in two previous ones. I, I know you remember them. <laughs> Best little whorehouse in Texas, which I had to explain to my mother 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So explain that one. to a Lutheran uh, minister. Explain that. No, to no, him. no. She was, well, and then the other one, and this is a sidebar to the story we're telling. The other one was a Bruce Willis, Damon Wayans buddy film called The Last Boy Scout. And I did my part. I was working with uh, Lynn Swan and, and uh, Mike, was it Mike Ditka? Yeah, I think it was. And anyway, this was the ultimate, one of the first buddy movies and it came out in 91. And it was, I mean, it was just crime related. You know, a lot of helicopters crashing a lot of Bruce Willis sitting and sleeping in the backseat of his convertible, waking up with a hangover, cussing, uh, cussing beyond belief. And so it came out and Nancy and I saw it and we thought, well, this is pretty funny. But Nancy and I were in our early 40s then. And I called my mom and she said, you didn't tell us about you were in this movie. And I said, mom, which movie? She said, The Last Boy Scout. And I said, well, mother, I, I didn't think it was because it was filled with filthy words. I mean, and uh, I didn't have to say any, but my partner for the, the movie was Lee Groska. And we, we did the whole soundstage and universal. Uh, so anyway, the movie comes out. We saw it and we thought, well, it's pretty funny. But we have a little more of a liberal understanding of what's funny than my mother and dad. And I said, you saw this movie? And she said, yeah, we, we took a couple from our church to a $2 movie night. And I said, how long did you stay? Oh, she said, we watched the whole thing because we saw you in the opening scene and we were convinced you'd have to come back and close it out. So that through the whole thing, I said, oh, mother. She said, no, no, we weren't proud of it, but we understood. So she had a graciousness about her that allowed her to do that. And did, did so, she watch, did she watch Happy Gilmore? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And that's the one, uh, you know, I did the line at the end about cupping my, my face like this and saying, who the hell is Happy Gilmore? And that's the one. <laughs> It, it, it still, here's the great thing about being in that movie. It's a cult classic. It is. It and, is. Vern, oh, you, yeah. you are, like you were saying with Jack and Tiger attached at the hip, like you are attached at the hip to Adam Sandler like that. It's such a cult classic that it's never going to go away. Even like decades from now, it's still going to be such a funny movie to watch. Well, and the wonderful thing, Rob, is that it, it's connected me to a generation of, of college kids that could be my grandchildren. We skipped two generations, probably coming up on three now. And I, I'll share one quickie about this. Uh, Billy Packer and I were doing a game, <clears throat> intersectional, intersectional game uh, made for television between uh, between North Carolina and Arizona. And it was in Tucson. And uh, North Carolina, Roy Williams was a coach. He didn't want any of us sitting courtside during practice because he 
was vividly uh, filled with adjectives. So we're sitting up halfway up in the stands, Billy, myself, Bob Dekas, our producer, and Steve Milton, our director. And uh, at the end of practice, the guys in Israel, and Tyler Hansborough was the star of the team. Mm-hmm. They, and they did win the national championship that year. Well, at the end of practice, this long-legged red shirt comes loping up the steps to where we were. And he said, Mr. Lundquist, the team would like to have you down on the floor. And I said, you mean Billy Packer? And he said, no, they sent me after you. And I'm looking down, the guys are all laid out, 11 of them, 12. And he said, follow me down, please. So, okay, I go down and I'm standing above uh, six foot, 10 inch Tyler Hansborough and he's stretching his hamstring. And he, and when I got there, the, the team shut up and there was no chatter. And he said, okay, give us, Hansborough did, give us the line from Happy Gilmore. <laughs> and I knew where he, where he wanted me to go. So I just cupped my hand and I said, who the hell is Happy Gilmore? And they just burst out laughing. And I told them then, and this was January, uh, if you win the national championship this year, I fully expect uh, a credit given for the motivational speech that ignited your run to the national title. <laughs> they never gave it to me. Ah, darn. <laughs> well, pivoting, you know, from one North Carolina team to another and going back to a, a, a semi-serious question right here, just a reliving of the moment. Um, in, in 1992, Duke's Christian Leitner hit a 17-foot turnaround jumper at the buzzer to beat Kentucky in overtime, arguably the most famous play in the history of college basketball. What was it like to be on that call that day? Extraordinary. Uh, extraordinary. Uh, I worked with Len Elmore. Uh, uh, has a doctor's degree from, gosh, I think Harvard. I'm not sure. But Lenny is a six foot 10 inch, Afri- 10 inch African-American with a dominant voice. And I know he's got a lot of grief from an Ivy League school. And uh, so we were working the game. And here, here's the sidebar. Uh, and it went through my mind almost in, in, within 15 seconds after Leitner hit the shot. Uh, Grant Hill is the only child of Calvin and Janet Hill. And they became really close friends. Yale was the number one draft pick, I mean, Calvin out of, uh, out of uh, Yale in 1969, running back, 6'3", uh, His wife, Janet, uh, was a graduate of of the Ivy League women's schools, memory is gone, but she was a sweet mate of Hillary Rodham before she became Hillary Rodham Clinton. So Calvin and Janet were expecting a child. We were having dinner one night somewhere. And I said, Calvin, do me a favor. When Janet gives birth, call me at Channel 8 in Dallas and I'll announce the, the birth of your child. And he said, well, we think it's going to be a son. So on Friday night, October 2nd, 
October 5th in 1972, 10 o'clock news, Calvin and Janet Hill have given birth to a son, Grant Hill Jr., because his grandfather's name was Grant. And uh, then that Sunday afternoon, they're playing Pittsburgh. And uh, Calvin, with less than 30 seconds to go in the game, rolled out to his right and threw a halfback auction pass into the end zone caught by Ron Sellers, who had come to the Cowboys from Florida State. And they won the game 17 to 13. The Cowboys did. So now I've announced the birth of, of Grant Hill on Friday night. Calvin throws a touchdown pass on Sunday. So here we are 20 years later. And this little baby that I met when he was less than two months old uh, is now a 6'8 sophomore. And Calvin and Janet are sitting right behind Mark Krzyzewski on, on the Duke, one row behind the Duke bench. And Calvin, I mean, Grant through the equivalent of a Hail Mary, you know, a little spin of the ball. They had 2.1 seconds left when they called the timeout. And uh, they were down by one. And he curled the ball into Leitner. And Leitner had the presence of mind to know Okay, 2.1 seconds. I can make a move to the right and then turn around. And he did, and he made the shot. And he came screaming down the floor. And, you know, arms raised. You've seen that shot so many times. And uh, so I, almost immediately, I, I realized, wow, 20 years later. And here's Calvin and Janet watching their son at 6'8", a sophomore, throwing this ball, curved a little bit. And Leitner turned around, he was 10 for 10 in the game uh, from the field, 10 for 10 free throws and seven rebounds. And he hits one of the greatest game-winning shots in the history of the NCAA tournament. And there've been a couple of occasions where uh, I, I remember great, uh, what's in the Hayward for, for Butler. And he launches a buzzer beater from midcourt and it hit the basket. And selfishly, when it didn't go in, I went, stay for another year. <laughs> Vern, Vern, so many things to unpack from what you just said. One, um, I was like, where is he going with this? And I was like, oh my gosh, this is an incredible story with Calvin and and uh, his wife and Grant, I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like, this is like something you just don't even know. Like, you, like besides for you, you knew all this and had the connection. That is just like blows my mind. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, wow. Wow. That was amazing. Again, chills. Like this is, this is like one of my favorite podcasts ever, just because I'm getting so many chills from you re reliving these moments in your life. Um, and then uh, Rick was actually at, that Butler final four with Duke, because uh, long story short, one of our friends from high school, Casey Peters uh, was a walk on at Duke and was on that Duke national championship team. So Rick went out to go see that game. So he was there too, to uh, Edwards, uh buzzer beater hit off the backboard, but wow. Well, that's, that's kind of like the Geico gecko where he has that marvelous, he 
drops something and he says serendipity <laughs> <laughs> well that's that's what that was wow unbelievable unbelievable amazing now now Vern, here we go we're going to finish this off with some super fun lightning round quick questions so quick questions here quick answers okay you ready okay. sure all right just it's going to be tough this this first one's going to be tough but best masters 1986 jack nicholas or 2019 tiger woods well personally i'm going to go with 86 but but 2019 be in the history books forever because of what Tiger accomplished with personal and physical problems. And uh, uh, so that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat and say they're co-equal for me. Okay. Okay. You know, I'll take that. I'll take that, Vern. I'll take that. Um, now, another Augusta national question. Where is your favorite place uh, to be at Augusta, at Augusta national and why? Right where I sit. <laughs> uh, I was moved to 20. I mean, I was moved in, in 2020. No, I was moved in 2000 to okay. the tower. I, I was moved, relocated there in 2000. I've done 38 masters now. So, so 16 is your favorite spot. Oh yeah. Because. I do six as well as 16. I have since 2000. <clears throat> and I can look directly over my back. And there's six. Uh, par three down the hill. I can almost see the guys tee off up here. And then I turn around and I can see. And this is a big benefit. I can see who's away. So we, we call that off the monitor. And so when Lance, or now Seller Shy, who's our new producer, when he says, go to six, I know what to expect. I'm not caught blind. I know who's going to putt. So that's a big advantage. But not only that, uh, 16 sits directly behind the pond. I can see the second and third shots at 15. I can look up here and see what's going on in the tee on six. I can learn to my, look to my left. And right here is the 17th tee. So I can, I can survey a lot of the property from that little tower. Not little, it's 20 feet high. Uh, and if you've had two back surgeries, as I have, uh, neither of which is particularly successful, uh, it's an advantage to, to know the property. And the other thing you always realize is don't drink any water <laughs> to come down from that tower <laughs> impossible yeah well rick and i will be sure to visit you on 16 uh in 2020 for the masters when we're there Do so. and Do so. we will we will and uh so another another quick question here we're friends with jim nance jim nance was on the pod uh like a month or so ago what's your favorite jim nance story that he would laugh at Oh, dear God. I've worked with Jim since 86. That was his first year. Uh, <clears throat> that he would laugh at. Probably, and most recently, is, is the commercial he does, and he does 19,000 commercials. He's more, more involved in commercial work 
than John Madden ever was. I, and, you know, and my favorite, my favorite uh, graphic at the end of a golf broadcast is Jim Nance wardrobe provided by Jim Nance Vineyard Vines. And it comes up, you watch this afternoon, it'll come up and the very last, they do the graphic sequence to sign off. And then men's other wardrobe provided by, I don't even know who it is, and women's wardrobe for Dottie and Amanda. But anyway, uh, Jim, I, I'll share a story with you. Kenny, ben, we used to share carts at Augusta. Now we, we've gone big time. We each get our own cart. But uh, Kenny, Kenny Venturi used to come by 13 and he would run by 16 to pick up Jim. And then together they'd go back to the compound and which is a good half mile away from 1615. Uh, you got to go way back down roads. And so Kenny picked Jim up and as they were traveling, Jim told me this story. He said, son, this is your first master's you're gonna wind up doing 50 of them, but you'll never, ever, ever have an experience like you just did in this 86 tournament. And I think even Jim would say, oh, now he might disagree because uh, he did the magical when they laid out at Tiger's win in 2019. Uh, that may be his personal favorite, but for me, it's always the memory of 86 more so than I, I said it's a toss up, but I'm not so sure it really is. I did, and it's personal, you know. And I know Jim remembers that 86 one too, because there's a classic story about Jack. Uh, you know, I, I went through the sequence of what he did. And at 16, he's got Jack Jr. on the bag. And he hits his five iron. That's how much things have changed at 16. Now it's an eight or a nine. But he hits his tee shot and he bends over to pick up his, his tee. And <clears throat> Jackie Jr. said, be good. And never looking up, Jack said, it is. <laughs> it, it, it came that close to being a hold in one. Uh, that was. Be good. It is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. So, so when we had Jim on the pod. Uh, he's a Jersey boy like myself and Rick. And we asked him his favorite food in New Jersey. And he told us pork roll and egg. Um, and then when we had Lauren on, he told us peach, he told us his favorite peach cobbler place in, in all of Georgia. Um, now, you've lived in Texas for a long time. Where mm -hmm. is the best barbecue in Texas? Sonny Brian's barbecue in Dallas. You got that, Rick? You writing that down? Rick, Sonny? Are you listening? Sonny Bryans. And there's also a brother or cousin, something, and that uh, Rick Bryans barbecue or red, I'm not sure which, but Sonny's is the original. Yeah. Sonny Bryans. Wow. Okay. Without hesitation there, Vern, without hesitation. No. <laughs> no. Love that. And then here's the, biggest, here's the biggest question of them all to end the podcast. Can Rick and I buy you a meal or a beer in Augusta in 2022? Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yes. To wow. end the pod. To end the pod. Wow. <laughs> Burn. 
Vern, that was so cool. Thank you so much for coming on the Brothers Brandt podcast today. It was a ton of fun having you. Congratulations on all of your career success. We look forward to seeing you in Augusta at the Masters next April. Thumbs up. Thumbs up, Vern. Thumbs up. There you go, folks. There it is. The golden voice of sports broadcasting, Mr. Vern Lundquist himself on the Brothers Brandt podcast. For all you listeners out there, I'm Rick Brandt. And I'm Rob Brandt, and we're the Brothers Brandt. Thanks so much, Vern. Thank you, guys. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. And we're Team Ready. ready. Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is, so they want you to be ready. It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com slash team ready.